Welcome to Joe's Pub. My name is Amanda Stern, and I'm an author and the host and curator of the Happy Ending Music and Reading Series, which you are currently attending. Welcome. Uh, tonight is the last show of the season, and it's a um, damn good one. Um, the theme of the night is communication, and um, in preparation for tonight's event, I've spent the last month um, polling our nation, but not our nation's capital, um, and have come to discover that the word communication means different things to many people. Um, it seems that the majority of the people recognize it as the thing they claim they're good at in the beginning of a relationship. Um, and uh, long-term therapy patients didn't actually understand what I was talking about until I swapped the word communication out with the word processing. Um, on college campuses, undergrads recognized it as the word they pluralized before declaring it as a major. Um, and in Marfa, Texas, it seemed that the word communication sent people's heads up to the sky where they pointed and whispered, you mean those guys? Um, but to me, communication means what it's supposed to mean, and what it means is email. So, um, so that's what tonight's show is all about. Um, what it's not about is talking in the audience. Awesome. Um, so we have an excellent show for you tonight. The musical guest is Anna Eggy. She continues to garner international attention surrounding her new album, Bad Blood, produced by Steve Earle on Amel Records. Bad Blood, Anna's seventh album, made its way onto many year-end best of lists with Rolling Stone saying, quote, Bad Blood is folk rock storytelling stained red and flush with madness. That's a fiction writer, writing for Rolling Stone. As upbeat musically as it is chilling, lyrically places her tuneful noir in a long American tradition. It's my great pleasure to give you Anna Eggy. Hello. How are you? It's my pleasure to be back at Joe's Pub and especially part of this series. Uh, yeah, she told me that the thing that I had to do was get you all to sing. I wish I knew about the risk thing, too, though. Dang it. I'm unprepared. I'm in the midst of writing a song about Jean Genet, which, <laughs> if I were really daring, I would sing it for you. <laughs> but it doesn't make much sense yet. This is called Hole in Your Halo. There's a hole. 
Thank you, Anna Eggie. Love that name. I'm going to change my name to Anna Eggie. All right, the first author of the night is Rajesh Parameshwaran. <laughs> Rajesh lives in New York. His book, The Collection of Stories, is called I Am an Executioner, and it is my great pleasure to give you a man I call Raj. Thank you for that introduction. It's not every day that somebody who's not fluent in Sanskrit pronounces my name correctly, so I appreciate that. I'm going to be reading in Sanskrit, so I'm just joking. I'm going to read from my short story collection, I Am an Executioner, Love Stories. Um, these are darkly comic love stories. I, uh, I read a couple of months ago at a bookstore, and there was a, a woman who said she'd come there because she was really into romance novels, and... Uh, they're not that kind of love story. She, she wasn't. She didn't buy a book. So, the story. Each of the stories are very different from each other, and uh, some are about people. Some are about immigrants. Some are about animals. Some are about aliens. Some are about spies. The story I'm going to read it, uh, from tonight is about a tiger, which is the tiger here, depicted. His his rear end is depicted, I guess. Um, 
And he's a tiger in a zoo, and it's a love story. He's fallen in love with his zookeeper, uh, naturally. And it, the scene I'm going to read from, uh, the tiger has woken up in the morning realizing that he is hopelessly in love with the zookeeper and wants to express his love somehow. Um, and has been waiting all day for the zookeeper to arrive to give him his usual feeding. And after many hours, the zookeeper has just arrived. And this is told it from the point of view of the, the tiger. And the tiger just sees the zookeeper. And that's where I'm going to start. It was really him, his red face aglow in the sunlight, and I almost jumped into the air with delight. Maharaj turned and galloped away to hide. The pain in my head melted into some pink, loving bliss. Where was my hunger? Where was all the gloom and trouble of the day? It was all gone. Kitch was here. I paced back and forth and meowed, like a lovesick lynx. I ran around in a circle and bit my tail. I peed in a long, hot stream with a big grin on my face. I paced up and down and up and down again. Then I rolled on my back and let my tongue loll out. And then I popped upright and roared. It was Kitch. Yes, Kitch was here. And I loved him. And he was here. Little did I know the most horrible thing was yet to happen. Kitch was still standing near the door. In fact, he seemed for some reason unnaturally cautious. He hadn't advanced toward me at all, nor had he called out to return my greetings. And that's when I realized there was someone with him an older man with thick glasses and wearing white rubber gloves on his hands. Kitch began finally to walk to one side of me, slowly, while trying to shield this other nervous man from my view. Well, I had no time for this nonsense. Kitch was here, and I had something to tell him. I loved him, and my love couldn't contain itself and I wanted to make Kitch feel it, too. I pranced right up to Kitch, to just about three feet away from him, as close as I had ever been. I'm here, Kitch, I meant to say, and I love you. When I jumped forward like this, the man with glasses behind Kitch gripped Kitch's shoulder hard, and said something I couldn't quite hear, and Kitch yelled at me sharply. And then Kitch did something I couldn't believe. He had a long stick in his hand. He always carried it, but I'd never seen him use it before. Now he raised this long stick high above his head and brought it down hard on my nose. I yowled and backed away, stunned. I couldn't at first understand what had happened. There was a sharp, reverberating pain between my eyes. The world before me seemed to split into two or three identical, sharp-edged versions of itself. Then everything became clouded in hazy splotches of red. 
Slowly, my senses returned to me. I began to realize what had happened, that Kitch had actually hit me, that he had hit me hard in front of this new person. But why? What had I done? I had only been trying to show how much I loved him. Now I began to feel very bad, not just the pain in my nose, but a different, difficult kind of anguish. Why would Kitch do a thing like that? Didn't he appreciate me? After I had wanted nothing more all day than to see that beautiful, fat face and to love him, even though he had ignored me since yesterday, even though he had left me all alone and hadn't bothered even to feed me, all that love he could have had for the taking, but instead he'd gone and done a thing like this. He'd hit me. Thanks. His latest novel is Luminarium. It was this year's winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Fiction and was named a Washington Post notable book. A Brooklyn native, he now lives in Chicago. And he's back to read to you. It's my great pleasure to give you Alex Shakar. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to read from my novel Luminarium, and I'm going to jump uh, way in. And, but there are only two things that you have to know. So, uh, one, uh, things aren't going well for our hero, Fred. Um, his fiance has left him. Uh, his twin brother, George, lies dying in a, in a cancer-induced coma. Um, the company the two of them have created uh, has been stolen and eaten by a military contracting conglomerate in Orlando. And a scientific study he's entered where they're giving him peak spiritual experiences with an electromagnetic helmet is having all kinds of crazy uh, effects on his life. Um, this week, they gave him a near-death experience, and uh, he went into the light, or, or very close, and he hasn't fully come back out. And uh, to make matters worse, he's now in Orlando. Um, and, and, and this is too. Uh, so he swallowed his pride and tried to get back into his former company, and things didn't go so well. Uh, so he went back to his hotel uh, room and drained his minibar. And then his godfather, Manfred, showed up. Now, Manfred is an old uh, actor and still aspiring filmmaker uh, working the theme park circuit in Orlando. Um, Fred's heard from his father that Manny just got back from a Zen monastery uh, where, uh, according to Manny, he achieved enlightenment. Um, Manny has now dragged Fred out um, saying that they'd go downtown uh, for a drink. So here we are. They were veering off an exit. No large buildings in sight. I thought we were going downtown. Yeah, no, not the real one. There's a better one here. Manny swung them through a gate of the Universal Studios theme park and onto a featureless service road outside a park wall. Streetlights illuminated the van's interior every few seconds. Tan vinyl upholstery hung in shreds from the door panels. The glove compartment was missing, as were the window cranks, a pair of small vice grips taking their place. 
The interior was clean, however, and the equipment in back, what looked like a pair of set lights and a director's chair, lay folded and held fast to the wall by straps. Manny noticed Fred looking in back. You want to be in a movie? Absolutely. I'll put you in one. I've got a great uh, angle after the monastery. Can show pictures, website and everything. Every flick guaranteed to bring on sudden enlightenment. He held up a qualifying finger, if you're ready. The van plunged into a multi-level parking structure and Manfred steered them up some ramps. The ripped upholstery flapped on the doors as they disembarked. Fred's door wouldn't quite close. He pushed on it, staggered, nearly fell over. The garage spun. Manfred stepped around and, by lifting it slightly, forced the door into place. Got it at a police auction. They took it apart looking for drugs. Didn't quite get it all back together. When Manny had said downtown, Fred had been envisioning a gloomy, empty dive on a dead-end street, a venue a bit more conducive to dissolving into a pool of despair than a heavily populated theme park. With little choice now, he followed his godfather into an enclosed skyway and onto a people mover, synth-inflected pop music pulsing from the speakers, speakers above. Matter of fact, Manny leaned against the moving handrail as the track trundled them along, producing from a fishing vest pocket a small video camera. This might make a good scene, too. You never know. He flipped it open at chest level, peering down at the screen as one might a poker hand, the lens aimed at Fred. What's my motivation, Fred grumbled, increasingly uncomfortable. Your choice, Manny nodded. If I could go back in time, I would have recorded my whole life. Who would watch it? No one. There was a light in Manny's eyes as he said this, charged yet lucid, which, more than the words themselves, made Fred wonder. The walkway ended. Manny led them through a concession area into the park's transgenic hybrid of urban downtown and outdoor mall. They made a slow loop around the carefully orchestrated chaos of lights and music, taking in the NASCAR and NBA restaurants, the Hard Rock Cafe, the fountain around which people sat gaping up at music videos on giant screens, the endangered species store, I shit you not, uh, the Bob Marley A Tribute to Freedom nightclub, that's the saddest one, the Bob Marley A Tribute to Freedom nightclub, the person-sized Spider-Man, Betty Boop and Shaggy from Scooby-Doo cutouts, and out across the water, the company's emblem, Universal, and the globe around which it wrapped, transformed from a mere image to a physical thing, as gigantic as ever it appeared on any screen. Manny remained uncharacteristically silent during these few minutes, gazing around serenely. So I've heard you've attained nirvana or something, Fred mumbled. Attained, non-attainment. Manny said, gaze keen. So what's that mean exactly? It means beyond attachment, Freddy. Beyond the vicious cycle of desire and aversion. He wheeled an arm back at the artificial river, ahead at the plaza. Beyond the slum of human reality, it means free, Freddy. Just free. That half-amazed, half-amused expression might have been a remnant of shock treatment, might have been Stanislavskian immersion, might have been the actual experience of something approaching that freedom of which he spoke. It occurred to Fred he'd never met an enlightened person that he was aware of. He didn't have much basis 
for comparison. At least, I think so, Manny said. None of those monks over there spoke very good English. We communicated mainly by slaps. Hey, Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. Let's go there. They've got good fries. Manny picked out two free stools at the bar under a massive sail and ordered his fries. Fred ordered a margarita from the 50-gallon blender-shaped tank over the register. As the drink was being prepared, Manny positioned the video camera, which for all Fred knew had never been turned off on the bar between them, propping its front end up with a stack of folded napkins so that it pointed at Fred's face. The irritation this caused him was so small a drop in the ocean of his misery that it didn't seem worth fighting. He asked for another margarita before picking up and draining the first. Only after he did so did he realize he just spent his last $10. Turning his wallet upside down, he shook the bill out onto the bar. There'd be no choice now but to give in to the hospital's continual calls for George to be moved to a long-term care facility, self-storage for the not-quite-dead, and even there, the fees would be staggering. So, enlightenment. How does it happen, he asked. Maybe he just wanted to punish himself. Instantly, Manny slammed his palm on the bar's copper surface. Fred started, fluorescent yellow drinks slopping onto his shirt. Like that, Manny said. It's a shock. Then, eventually, they transfer the Buddha mind seal to you. He made a gesture with clutched fingers in front of Fred's eyes, resembling, more than anything, the Vulcan mind meld. But to start, you've got to penetrate the Mu. He gave Fred a significant look. Behind him, on a projection screen, Jimmy Buffett himself sang into a mic and strummed a guitar. Higher up, toward the ceiling, the propellers of a suspended seaplane spun with a hypnagogic slowness. The Mu, Fred asked. The monk Joshu was telling his disciples how Buddha nature is present in all things. One of his disciples asked, is it also to be found in a dog? And Joshu replied, Mu. Fred waited for more. Manny, however, was already elsewhere, picking up his camera and zooming in with a phallically extending lens on a table of women under a thatched umbrella. Tits, 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 he said. Then, turning back to Fred, it's very simple. This isn't real. For an unearthly moment, they stared at each other. It almost made sense, Fred thought. How could this crass, shimmering place, how could any of this be real? It's not, not real, Manny added. Fred was still nodding, trying to understand. Manny continued, staring into him, judging his readiness. It's not both not real and not not real, Manny elucidated. Fred chased the words, fighting the despair. It's not neither not real nor not not real, Manny said. Just tell me why my life sucks so much, Fred said. Manny fixed him with that peculiar eye light. What are you talking about? This is the pure land, he spread his arms wide. Hey, paradise. The flashing gelled lights positioned above the bar reflected off Manfred's bald head, now red, now yellow, now blue. You guys are incredible, Manny went on. A year ago, George asked me the same thing. He did? Same fucking words, just about. Manny, why does life suck so much? 
Manny, why can't I get what I want? Why couldn't he, Fred said, dizzy from the alcohol and lights, nearly slipping off his stool. Why can't I? So change what you want. Who can want failure, Fred shouted. Who can want misery? So stop wanting. How can I stop wanting? So stop being. Whoa. What do you mean, kill myself? Whoa, said the bartender, a sunburned guy with a gold necklace and open Hawaiian shirt as he set Manfred's fries on the bar. No suicide in Margaritaville. Wasting away only. It's in the charter. No self, no problem, Manny said with a placid smile. Thank you. author of the night, coincidentally, um, also blurbed um, Roger's book, so we thought, why not just read the blurb, and that'll be the reading. (laughs) Not good? Okay. That's why we're not going to do that. Um, Nell Freudenberger is the author of the novel The Dissident and the story collection Lucky Girls, winner of the Penn Malamud Award and the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Her new book is called The Newlyweds. She lives in Brooklyn with her family. It is my great pleasure to give you Nell Freudenberger. I'm going to read um, from, from this novel called The Newlyweds about a young woman named Amina uh, who comes uh, from Bangladesh to New York to marry a man, an American man she met on the Internet. She hadn't expected to be nervous, and at first she wasn't. George had told her what her cue would be, and Amina allowed her mind to wander while she waited for it. When she'd left Desh, there was still the possibility that her parents would be able to come to Rochester for the wedding. Ninety days had seemed like enough time to plan, but when George went online to reserve airline tickets, they were almost $1,500 each, even if her parents made stops in Dubai and Hamburg, Germany. George was willing to help pay for the tickets, but she could tell he wasn't happy about it. And so Amina had called her parents on a phone card and given them her opinion. It was a waste of money. She and George were getting married at the county clerk's office, and afterward there would be a dinner at Giorgio's Trattoria in Brighton. The whole thing would take maybe four hours, including driving time. And Amina and her father agreed that to fly 20 hours in order to do something that took four hours didn't make a lot of sense. In the end, as she'd expected, the problem was not her father, but her mother. Her mother had agreed at first, and they'd even made another plan. As soon as Amina and George could come back to Dhaka, they would go to a studio and take wedding photographs. They would buy wedding clothes, and Amina would go to the beauty salon. They would have more money to spend on the clothes and the photographs, since her father wouldn't be paying for a wedding. Once they had the photographs, it would... Once they had the photographs, her mother could look at them all the time. It would be no different than if they'd all celebrated a wedding together for real. She had thought her mother was satisfied, and then a few nights later, Amina got a call after they'd gone to bed. Her mother was crying, and it was hard to understand her. Her father told her not to worry, but when she asked why her mother was crying, he said, she's crying because she's going to miss your wedding. She's going to miss it because I couldn't afford the ticket. No, Amina said, we decided it didn't make sense. 20 hours for four hours, $3,000 for one party. She could hear hammering in the background. A new building was going up across the street. 
Her parents complained that the new apartments would be much better than theirs, but Amina was disposed to look on the bright side. The neighborhood was improving. Tell her it will be only a small party, she told her father. Your wedding party. What kind of terrible parents don't come to their own daughter's wedding? She started to argue, but her father wasn't listening. Her mother was saying something in the background. What did she say? Her father paused so long that she would have thought the call had been dropped, except that she could still hear the sound of hammering on the other end. It was morning in Mohammedpur, the sun behind the haze, the kids walking to school in twos and threes, the crows on the telephone wires and the call of the vendors, chilies, eggs, excellent quality feather brooms, or her favorite, the man who took your plastic jugs and gave sweet potatoes in exchange. Once again, she had the disorienting feeling that her past was still happening, unfolding in a parallel stream right alongside her present. At the other end of the line, another Amina was hiding her head under the covers, stealing just a few more minutes before the cacophony outside forced her to put two feet on the cold, tiled floor. Tell me, Abba. Her father's voice when it came was stoppered, strange, as if he'd swallowed something whole. She says it would have been better if you'd never been born. George shifted sleepily in the bed. Tell them you'll call them back tomorrow. Amina gripped the head of the bedpost. From their room, she could see the house behind them, windows blazing in the dark. Tell her the food is going to be terrible, she whispered to her father. Tell her there is a popular dish called pigs in blankets. <laughs> but George was awake. Are you talking about food now? It doesn't matter about the food, her father said. The point is that you were her only child. Do you, Amina Mazid, take this man, George Stillman, to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. The corresponding question was asked of George, and then the city clerk declared, I now pronounce you husband and wife. George leaned toward her, and Amina leaped back. From the chairs behind them, Kathy made a hiccuping sound. George's face tightened in a familiar way, like the mouth of a drawstring bag. And when Amina glanced behind her, she saw an identical contraction on the face of her new mother-in-law. She hurriedly stepped toward George, smiling to let him know that it was only that she was surprised, not that she didn't want to kiss him in front of his family and friends. Many hours later, after cocktails at Aunt Kathy's, the reception dinner at Giorgio's, and then cake, coffee, and the opening of gifts at George's mother's house, Eileen had insisted that Amina call her mom from now on. When they were home in bed together so much later than usual, George had asked why she hadn't wanted to kiss him. You didn't tell me, she explained. You didn't know there was kissing at a wedding? Amina had to think about that for a minute because of course she had known. She had known since she was nine years old and her devil aunt had bought a television. She had seen it on Dallas and LA Law and The Fall Guy. And so there was no way to explain her ignorance to George. I did know. I guess I just didn't believe it would happen to me. You've kissed me a hundred times, George said, in a voice that suggested to Amina they might be about to have their first fight. She wanted to avoid that, especially tonight, because if there was anything she believed about marriage, it was that arguing the way her parents did was a waste of time. Not only kissing, the marriage in total. You didn't believe we were getting married? What did you think we were doing? It had started to rain, and that comforting sound lent the contents of the room a sudden momentary familiarity, almost as if she'd seen them once long ago. In Desh, you can make your plans, but they usually do not succeed. But in America, you make your plans, and then they happen. 
To her relief, George finally smiled. So you planned to kiss me, but you were surprised when it actually happened. Yes, Amina said. I was dumbstruck. Um, so, um, so thank you so much for coming. Thank you all so much. We will see you out in the lobby where you will trample us. Yes? Good night. <laughs>